You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Studying the Gospel of John, continuing to do that. But Jesus said, say that with me. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. So what does that mean to us? Those two words, I am, two of the most important words in any language or any dictionary. And whatever you put after the words, quote, I am, unquote, reveals your identity can determine your reality, can even alter your destiny. It's the way every one of us have to tell the world who we are, and it's important. But when Jesus used that phrase, the implications from a Hebraic-Judeo perspective, the implications from a biblical standpoint were even more significant than what I've already mentioned. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And if we can do this right, and if the Lord will help me, uh, those four words are going to be a lot more meaningful to you this morning maybe than they ever have been. I am the good shepherd. Those five words. (laughs) I'm three years old, he said, you know. But Jesus, Jesus is the good shepherd. John 10, 10 through 15, I'll read this to you. I like the Amplified. Um, Actually, this is not the Amplified. I do like the Amplified, but this is the Passion Translation. It's, uh, I like to switch these things up because it gives you a little bit different slant on things, which I think is pretty cool, but... John 10, 10 through 15, a thief has only one thing in mind. He wants to steal, slaughter, and destroy. Now, of course, all my Christian days, I've heard the devil comes not but to steal, kill, and destroy. But that word kill actually means slaughter. We really do not understand how seriously the devil hates us. We really do not understand that. And I think many of us don't really understand that we live in a battle zone. We live in a war zone. Um, We're aliens. We're citizens. Really, we have dual citizenship. When you're born again, you have a citizenship from heaven, and you have one from here because you're actually born here. But um, we need to recognize there's spiritual dynamic to life, and if we don't, uh, we're really going to lose out. So... Jesus said, but I have come to give you everything in abundance more than you expect. Life in its fullness until you overflow. Gosh, what a promise. I want to read all that together. I want to make the comparison between our adversary and our shepherd who is a good shepherd. A thief has only one thing in mind. He wants to steal, slaughter, and destroy. But I have come to give you everything in abundance, more than you expect, life in its fullness until you overflow. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life as a sacrifice for the sheep. But the worker who serves only for wages is not a real shepherd because he has no heart for the sheep. He will run away and abandon them when he sees the wolf coming. And then the wolf mauls the sheep, drags them off, and scatters them. Then Jesus says this, I alone am the good shepherd, and I know those whose hearts are mine, for they recognize me and know me, just as my Father knows my heart, and I know my Father's heart. I am ready to give my life for the sheep. And one little simple phrase I saw in the Guidepost magazine, I thought it was so succinct. It just says this, Jesus used 
seven metaphors to describe his divine nature and his redemptive mission. So seven times Jesus made I am statements about himself. And we're also going to see, I'm not going to get into too much detail, three other times in the Gospels, Jesus simply answered questions or made statements that only had those two words in it, I am. Actually, if you look at, um, I can't remember which gospel it's in. There are only four of them. Wouldn't take you long. But in the garden, Garden of Eden, wrong garden. Now, he was in this garden because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. It started in the garden and ended in the garden. But anyway, the Garden of Gethsemane, when the Roman cohorts came and the self-righteous came and everybody came to take Jesus away, they asked him if it's Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And when he said those two words, I am, the entirety of that Roman cohort were knocked to the ground. So there's way more to those two words when Jesus says them than we've recognized. And if we can tap into what they really mean and we can believe into what Jesus was saying, our lives can change. We can get another upgrade. But he only used, he used seven metaphors to describe his divine nature and his redemptive mission. Every one of these are in the Gospel of John. A couple of weeks ago, Matt Peterson shared on, I am the true vine. That's one of them. The next one, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then Andy Squires shared, I am what? The bread, the bread of life. The next one, I am the light of the world. The next one, I am the gate. The next one, I am the resurrection and the life. And then the one we're looking at this morning, I am the good shepherd. Jesus' I am statements would have particular significance. And I I like to do this. I like to actually note some of this stuff I go look up and copy. You understand what I'm saying? And so I've gotten some of these quotes from somewhere else. And I'm saying that to say this. We have to use integrity when we speak. We can't, uh, we can't be articulate as though it's me being articulate when it's somebody else's articulation. You, you with me? That's not a good thing. That's stealing. So, um, I think I wrote this, though, so I'm quoting myself. <laughs> I'm safe both times, so. Jesus' I am statements would have particular significance to the first century Jewish listener. Oh, this is so amazing. What happened with Moses? You may remember, how many of you remember Moses in the burning bush? Or how many of you can quote that whole section? How many have read it before? Come on, participate. How many of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about? That's not a shameful thing. Good, one in the back. I think there are honest people in this house. (laughs) Well, you may remember that Moses had a unique and life-changing encounter with God at the burning bush. Basically, as strange as this is, and I must be perfectly honest with you, I enjoy thoroughly some of the strange aspects of what goes on in the Bible. Because I get bored pretty easily. And I am always hoping God will do something that will scare some of us in a really good way. I don't mean, how many of you know there's the fear of the Lord, then there's that demonic fear? Yeah, I've, I've had both. I only prefer one. But Jesus' I am statements have particular significance to first century Jews. You may remember that Moses had a unique and life-changing encounter with God at the burning bush. So, Moses has failed. Somebody say failed. Moses is an 80-year-old failure who is following the sheep. It says in Exodus, do you know what sheep leave? That's what Moses is walking. You think your life is bad. 40 years, he was following sheep. And he had sandals. I guess he did. I don't know. Um, so God, <laughs> God appears to Moses 
in a burning, actually in my studies, they think it was actually a blackberry bush. I mean, it's not even a good bush. It's not even like a rhododendron bush that's beautiful. No, this scraggy, ragged old, best you can. I like blackberries though. Some kid, like a blackberry bush. And suddenly here's this bush aflame and it starts talking to Moses. And Moses sees it and thinks, wow, there's a bush that doesn't go out. I think I'll go see what's going on. I know there were times in his life where he thought that's the worst mistake I have ever made in my life. If you know where that bush got him. (laughs) A 40-year encounter with 2 million rebels and nevertheless. Okay, so God speaks to Moses and authorizes Moses to confront Pharaoh and deliver 2 million Jewish slaves from Pharaoh's control. So let's analyze this a little bit. (laughs) First of all, this was a highly unusual and expected experience for Moses. How many would agree with that? How many of you ever God speak to you out of a plant audibly? I don't, I don't see a hand raised. I had mine up, but I would just ask it. Um, highly unusual encounter for Moses. Secondly, what were the odds that an 80-year-old shepherd with no power, no army, no influence, no recognized authority could possibly affect the 400-year-old Egyptian slave culture or convince Pharaoh, the leader of the biggest nation in the world, to willingly dismiss his kingdom's primary source of free labor. How was that going to happen? Third, who was going to believe his I met God in a bush story? Anyway, so let's, um, let's sum up this little section for poor Moses. Moses had some questions, ladies and gentlemen. Moses had some reservations. Moses had some insecurities, I guess so. Moses had some concerns. Moses, I can't say Moses this morning. I do have a grandchild named Moses, so I've been practicing. Moses had some issues. Moses had major questions. And so here's what Moses does, Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, and this is a legit question, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And I've been happy with like Jeff. or (laughs) No, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And then he tells him, this is what you will say to the children of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So can you begin to make some implications and tie some things together? God called himself in his simplest, clearest form, I am, meaning a lot of things we'll look at here in a minute. But can you now think back to every time Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was very clearly saying he was that same person that was back there speaking to Moses in the bush. He was very offensive to the religious leaders. But Jesus was simply saying, this is who God really is. For you, resurrection and life, way, truth, and life, light of the world, the gate, the door. So many different things Jesus said. And then he said, and I am that good shepherd. So Moses asked God for his name. God responded with a resounding, I am. Now, what did God mean when he called himself that? And this is a quote from um, godquestions.org. 
because I, I felt like it said it better than I could say it. When used as a standalone description, I am is the ultimate statement of self-sufficiency, self-existence, and immediate presence. Think about those two things. Say that, self-sufficiency, self-existence, immediate presence. Yeah. God does not need any help. God does not need any information. God does not need any advice. God is never late. Why is God never late? He's everywhere at all times. He doesn't have anywhere to go. And he's invisible. How do you know when God is near? You can't see him. That's the key. People never get that when I share that, but uh, I think it's, it builds my faith to believe that God's invisible and I'm not seeing him now. That would give me some encouragement, right? Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't, I'm not normal, but. Whatever this is, I enjoy. Um, God's existence is not contingent upon anyone else. Here's something that has always frightened me. And it began as a child laying in my bedroom late at night, eight, nine years old, looking at the stars after having learned in school that um, the sky was not a black sheet with pins holes poked in it and a light behind it. Those were real lights, and they were a long way away. And wherever that went out there never stopped. And that was, that was, that was the first time I experienced the fear of the Lord. Because what I was realizing was God is not like me, in the sense that he is infinite. He is ever, always, and never stops. And then you study certain things about creation. They say the cosmos continues to expand at an extraordinary rate. How? We can't. Expands where? Right? Where is it going? Okay. That used to really bother me when I was a kid. That's when I started playing baseball in my imagination so I could actually get to sleep instead of being scared of God. That was my go-to plan. Now my go-to plan is the Bible. You ever get spooked in the night because your mind won't quit? What are you going to do? you got to substitute. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Say that 25 times. What does that mean? I don't have a clue. The nice buildings in heaven probably or whatever. But how many of you have mental problems? <laughs> Trouble with your mind in the middle of the night. Yeah, join the crowd. That's terrible, right? We are such weak people. Has anybody seen that yet? <laughs> Man, we are bold as a lion when there's no lion there, right? Anyway, God promises that he will be what he will be. That is, he will be the eternally constant God. He stands ever-present and unchangeable, completely sufficient in himself to do what he wills to do and to accomplish what he wills to accomplish. When God identified himself as I am who I am, he stated that no matter when or where, he is there. Now, that's the person that loves you knowing who you are through and through. That's the one who knows you. It's similar to the New Testament expression in Revelation 1.8. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. This is true of him for all time, but it would have been especially appropriate for a message in Moses' day to a people in slavery and who could see no way out. I mean, sometimes we think we're in trouble, right? But Israel, the Hebrew nation, had been in bondage for 400 years. That's essentially longer than our nation has been a nation. There's... In that, but that's how long they were enslaved. 
They had decades and generations of slave mentality. They had nobody on their side. They were despised. They were used. They were a commodity. And so God comes to them and says to them, I am. I am was promising to free them. And they could count on him. God basically sent Moses to face the world's strongest nation with this one humiliating, stupid, hard to grasp, non-intimidating, weak, base message. Look out, Pharaoh. I am has sent me. He talked to me from the bush. And he's invisible. And he's coming for you. And people say, it doesn't take faith. Come on. Come on. And here's the wonder. It worked. I've known on on several occasions some of the things Andy uh, has mentioned about weakness. And weakness is an extraordinary asset to the believer. Recently, the last six weeks, I've had different challenges, things I've had to step up to. I did this TV show a couple weeks ago, and I spent a month trying to help them not lose $200,000 they were paying just to get the thing on the air. I mean, I felt that. I felt that. They were going to ask me questions. I want to have good answers. I felt weak. I felt weak. I mean, there's situations, there are times in my life where I feel like, what am I, what am I doing? I'm weak. I'm, I, I, well, well, then the Bible says the Lord said to the weak, say, I'm strong. God's strength is made perfect in Weakness. Now, not not that's moral weakness or um, lying or you know not, but no, just the fact that you're wondering, I I can't make this work. I mean, I've been a pastor before and looked at people's situations and things that concern me, and you know, I I think, how's this going to work? That that that's my job description is to figure out how to help things work when I have no ability to make them work. That's a lot of fun, a lot of times. But you, you've got to get to where you don't feel, you can't change anything, you can't change anybody. You can just believe God and be an encourager. But I've had that sense of weakness. And recently, the Lord, I believe the Lord said to me, I was, ta- I was telling Andy this the other day, and I don't know how this is going to turn out, but the Lord said, I have... Now, when I'm talking about weakness, I'm talking about trouble sleeping at night. Who knows that? Yeah. Things going through my mind that can be difficult to control at times. And I have recognized, I've been doing this a long, long time, almost five decades. And I know there's seasons where even though that goes on and we don't like it, it can often be God reminding us that you are weak I'm strong. And I felt like the Lord did say that. Recently, I reminded you again of your weakness, but I will show you my strength. Now, I don't know when, where, how. I do believe I've written a book on it. I believe America is going to experience another great awakening. I personally see no hope for the nation apart from the Lord. The best of anybody in any party, I probably wouldn't want to play putt-putt with them. And I'm, and I'm not a good character either. They, wouldn't, they ain't invited me to come either, so what are we going to say? But No, no, no. What I'm saying is, though, e- even nationally and internationally, we're seeing the... What if this were the best of mankind? And, it, and see, you might think, well, that's hard. No, no, no. That's awesome. If in those days God shows himself strong, 
Now, I lived through the Vietnam era, the free love era, the hippie era, the 60s. I had hair down to my shoulders. I wasn't highly medicated, but I was partially medicated. They, they say if you remember the 60s, you didn't participate. I remember most of the 60s. And much of the culture that we see, the conflict in our culture, is almost a mirror image of the, of the culture in the 1960s and 70s when there was the greatest move of God maybe in the whole history of our nation. You, you got saved like it or not sometimes. It, and I don't mean against your will. I mean, it's just like, it's crazy. So while I'm being negative, let me posture all that negativity in a very positive framework. God wants to do something. He wants to show himself strong on our behalf. He wants to do it individually. He wants to do it corporately. He wants to do it by families. He wants to do it by neighborhoods. But there's a point where we need to know we really are weak. We really can't do this in our own innate strength. We need God. People have told me to, God's a crutch. I said, if God's a crutch, give me two. Give me a motorized wheelchair. A conveyor belt, whatever. I am in need. <laughs> so when Jesus used those seven I am metaphors, he revealed specific ways that he was committing himself to us in an unchangeable, ever-present, completely sufficient, unhindered, permanent way. Jesus committed himself to us to be the good shepherd. A thief has only one thing in mind. Steal, slaughter, and destroy. Here's job description of our adversary. Steal, slaughter, and destroy. Here's his methodology. Accuse, accuse, condemn, accuse, accuse. If you pick up on the cultural wavelength of accusation, no matter what side of any argument you're on, you have just been duped into the uh, methodology of the age to destroy yourself and those people around you. I was at a place the other day, and we're talking about Stephen Furtick, Elevation Church. I love Stephen Furtick. I love Elevation Church. And this guy was saying, well, you know, uh, uh, well, what do you think? About his I said, well, you know, it's what I think. He built a really big house, probably too big. You know, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a young man's mistake. Probably shouldn't have done it. I don't care. I didn't see him with a pistol holding people up, stealing their wallets. <laughs> yeah, but the guy said, yeah, but they say it's, uh, it's like the new uh, Jim and Tammy Baker. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Just another collapse on the marvelous junk pile of historic difficulties. I don't mean the people are junk, but I mean the stuff that goes on. Yeah, I read this. I didn't even read the book. I read the intro to the book, and it said, The church has never had a golden age. It's always been this way, ladies and gentlemen. You're going to make it something makes more spectacular. I'm watching. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean we ought to not do good. Come on. But you know what I'm saying. Pride goes before a fall. And the clearest picture of a proud person is a condemning accuser. So this guy said, they're next to Jim Tammy Baker. And I said, I said, you know what? I'm, I don't, I don't. I really did say this to the guy. I said, I'm not like you. Well, really, I am like him, but I figured it out so I don't have to be like him to make it all perfectly clear. I said, I'm not like you. He said, what? I said, I don't spend my time trying to figure out what's wrong with people. Now, this guy had left his wife 
left his children and took up with a young lady. And he wants to tell us about the Bakers and Stephen Furtick. And I don't even care what his opinion is. Come on. And I'm not putting anybody down for any mistake they've ever made. But man, if you live in a glass house, keep rocks in your pocket. We've been, I've had the great benefit, some of us in this room, of knowing Arthur Burke. And Arthur Burke could prove to you biblically that pride is worse than sin. Would you like for me to prove that pride is worse? And you can say pride's a sin, but I, I, and probably it is, but God resists sinners. What does he do with the pride? I mean, God forgives sinners. A repentant sinner gets so forgiven, God forgot what he did. But with the proud, what does God do? Resist. Resist. So what's worse? What somebody has done that's wrong or people throwing rocks at them? That's pretty deep. Listen, that can take you 10 years to work through. Anyway, am I okay? All right, let's go on. I am. The good shepherd led me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 in the Lord's Prayer, two of the most well-known verses in the Bible. Did I ever tell you the story about uh, the Chicago Bears? And how many of you remember, you may or may not, this guy, Refrigerator Perry? He's about a 500-pound tackle. And he was really good guy, but not really smart. And then there was Jim McMahon, the quarterback, who was a little bit smarter. Well, uh, they asked um, Refrigerator Perry to say the Lord's Prayer before they took the field. And Jim McMahon leaned over to, you know the Lord's Prayer, our Father art in heaven, that part. Jim McMahon leaned over to the, um, uh, to the chaplain and said, I'll bet you $50 he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. And the chaplain said, you're on. And so... Refrigerator Perry said, bow your heads. He said, now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And Jim McMahon said, God, I didn't know he knew it. So let's read the Lord's Prayer together. I think they're going to put this up. We're going to do it in two different versions because it's so potent. You guys ready? You want to do it out loud? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness For his name's sake, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That sounds like a really good testimony, doesn't it? Uh, It wasn't a testimony. We're going to see that in a minute. I want to read this now in the Passion Translation. Is that up there, folks? Turn to your neighbor and say, please wake up. No, I think everybody's right. <laughs> the Lord is my best friend and my shepherd. I always have more than enough. He offers a resting place for me in his luxurious love. His tracks take me to an oasis of peace 
the quiet brook of bliss. That's where he restores and revives my life. He opens before me pathways to God's pleasure and leads me along in his footsteps of righteousness so that I can bring honor to his name. Lord, even when your path takes me through the valley of deepest darkness, fear will never conquer me for you already have. You remain close to me and lead me through it all the way. Your authority is my strength and my peace. The comfort of your love takes away my fear. I'll never be lonely for you are near. You become my delicious feast even when my enemies dare to fight. You anoint me with the fragrance of your Holy Spirit. You give me all I can drink of you until my heart overflows. So why would I fear the future? For your goodness and love pursue me all the days of my life. Then afterward, when my life is through, I'll return to your glorious presence to be forever with you. Now, the interesting thing of almost any scripture is the context. I mean, um, from prison, Paul wrote, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. From prison. Yeah. Count it all joy when you suffer diverse temptations. He wrote all those from prison. He wrote some of the most amazing things from prison of encouragement. Well, that, that says something, right? That if Paul as a prisoner believed these things and could say these things, we're not in prison. We ought to be able to do them a little bit easier, even than he has. So context is so important. Well, the context of Psalm 23, we should appreciate the fact that this Psalm belongs to the time in David's life when his son Absalom tried to steal the kingdom from him and kill him in the process. David was an old man. David had a number of sons. He had some sons from different, different wives. Um, two of his sons, one was Amnon and the other one was Absalom, uh, born from different mothers, so they were half-brothers. And Amnon had, in the worst way, assaulted Absalom's sister, Tamar, and then threw her out of his house. And so Absalom was very angry. He waited for a while, and then Absalom murdered his half-brother Amnon for what he had done to his sister. Uh, this, these are David's kids. You, you'd think you had a problem, right? So David sent Absalom into exile for three years. And then through certain circumstances and appeals, he allowed him to return to Jerusalem, but wouldn't see him face to face for another two years. And finally, they reconciled. But after they reconciled, Absalom began to steal the hearts of the people up to a point where he rebelled against his father, David. And David had to flee Jerusalem, penniless, broke, afraid for his life, not knowing where he was going to stay, never mind whether or not he was going to live. And if Absalom had followed one counselor's advice, David would have been dead within 24 hours, but he didn't. He followed another person's advice, and David had uh, the capacity to raise an army, defend himself, and the story goes that Absalom died. But David, this is the amazing thing. David wrote this psalm in the midst of Absalom's insurrection. When nothing in that psalm was true in David's experience. But here's what we need to see. It is a testimony. Because your testimonies for when God meets you can also become your prophetic proclamations when none of those things are happening now. 
I mean, how many of us bristle when we read the Passion Translation and it says, the Lord is my best friend, I always have more than enough. Yeah, you could bristle on that, right? So what we find here is that this was the song David would sing. He would sing the opposite of his experience because he knew what the I am could do for him. But he was broken in the process. It says in um, 2 Samuel, so David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and he wept as he went up and he had his head covered and he went barefoot and all the people were with him, covered their heads, went up, weeping as they went, trying to escape from Absalom's treachery. And here's what David was singing. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil for you are with me. He was in the shadow. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So I read an interesting story, and then we're going to do a little practice here in a minute. Um. I happened to run across this the other day in one of Stephen Furtick's messages, and it was so good. And I'm, I want to read this to you in the context of verse 1 of the 23rd Psalm. What does that say? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let's say that one more time just to think about this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, you say it by testimony if you don't need anything. You say it by faith proclamation if you do. See, this is the way this works. This is the way this works. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. One of the great commentators, Colin Dealey, said, He who has the Lord, the possessor of all things, himself has all things. Well, Stephen Furtick tells his story that he asked his mothers for his dad's old desk for his new house. His father passed away, and Stephen, to Stephen, the desk represented uh, his father's devotion to the family while he was talking with his mom um Furtick shared that he learned the desk was also also his grandfather's before it belonged to his father well Stephen shared that his dad worked hard to make sure that he had the resource to go to college it was an important step for the barber with humble earnings so Stephen's dad was cut hair for a living so he made his living Stephen said this he said this Dad would sit at that desk and figure out about paying the bills, and then he would go walk around town and pay them all by cash. And he said, I always thought that was sort of sketchy, but anyway, that's what happened to him. Paid it really cash. Well, the reason Stephen wanted the desk came down to a specific conversation he had with his father before he left for college. His dad said, when you get out there, don't you be broke and not tell me about it. If I have money, you have money. When you get out there, don't you be broke and not tell me about it. If I have money, you have money. Well, Furtick knew, or Furtick said he never forgot what his father told him. His dad was going to back him up no matter what. So Stephen wanted his congregation to have that same blessing. If your father has it, you have it. If I got money, you got money. Let's read that 23rd Psalm again. Then I want to do a little process. Why don't you put that back up the uh, 
King James one that we know. Okay. Lord, wait a minute. How many of you need something you don't have? Who has it to give it to you? The Lord. So this, those of you who don't need anything, and I hope there's some in here. Honestly, that's awesome. When people are, God's met them and they've had breakthrough. So for you, it's a testimony. But for others who need something, a healing or a finance or a restoration, it's a faith proclamation. So let's say this together as a faith proclamation. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Two comments and then we're going to do something. Maybe three comments. Shepherds anointed sheep's heads and packed their nostrils with oil because of the parasites that could actually permeate their, the membrane, their nasal membrane, and drive them crazy. There's an anointing for mental distress this morning, ladies and gentlemen. He anoints my head with oil. He restores my soul. Another way of putting that is God fetches back my vitality. You've lost something. You've lost a strength. You've lost a desire. You've lost something. He restores my soul. My cup runs over. Actually, the Septuagint translation reads this way. You intoxicate me with your very finest wine. The oil of wine of joy, oil of joy, all of that. God wants a happy people. He wants to touch us to the degree that circumstance don't dictate our attitudes or our mindsets. So, let's do this. If your father has it, you have it. Here's what the Lord says. If I have money, you have money. If I have hope, you have hope. If I have healing, you have healing. If I have security, you have security. If I have joy, you have joy. If I have peace, you have peace. If I have love, you have love. If I have victory, you have victory. I'm the good shepherd. Stephen Furtick's dad said, uh, when you get out there, don't you be broken, not tell me about it. Who are you going to tell? The all-sufficient one. Amen, amen? Everybody okay? Let me just do this. This is, this is very interesting. Stand up, and I'm going to release all this to everybody. And if uh, faith, something might happen, okay? Okay. Since God has money, I release money to you. Since God has hope, who needs money? Rachel, just lay hold of money. Yeah, I mean, it ain't going to hurt. You, you, the worst you can do is not have any more than you came with. If I have money, you have money. God has money. If I have hope, you have hope. Who needs hope? Do something. Grab it. Put it on you. Smack yourself in the head. Do something. Do something active. Something faith. If I have healing, you have healing. Lay your hand on where you need it to get healed. If I have security, you have security. Be secure. 
If I have joy, you have joy. If I have peace, you have peace. Who needs peace? If I have love, you are loved. And if I have victory, you already have victory. Matter of fact, in the most depressed state I ever found myself as a Christian, the Lord gave me this stupid song. The stupidest song. It's so stupid I'm embarrassed. But it went this way. Now, I was totally depressed. I had broken up with my wife. I had no hope. We weren't married yet. Broke up with the woman that became my wife. I had no hopes of marrying her because I did that five times. Everybody in the church thought I was a lunatic. I was being warned about. Go not about with a man who changes his mind frequently. (laughs) And I was depressed. The Lord gave me this song. He's done it in me. Yes, he's done it in me. Jesus has come and he has set me free. And I said, Lord, you haven't set me free. He said, sing it. (laughs) No more sorrow. Despair has fled away. I still have a broken heart. Sing it, bud. Sing it. I stand in the victory. He put me there to stay. Oh, Lord, that's not true. He said, sing it. What do you know? What do you know is true and not true? What if there's a higher truth than what you think is true? What if there's a truth higher than your experience? What if there's a truth higher than the very greatest thought you have ever had? What if those things that lead you in destruction turn out to be absolute fabrications, things that never happened, never existed, they're just in your mind? But you can't overcome them until you agree with the God of all truth who knows what truth is. Sing that song, son. He's done it in me. He's done it in me. Jesus has come. He has set me free. No more sorrow. Despair has fled away. I stand in the victory. Put me there. I'm feeling a little bit better. (laughs) Glory to God. He made me a son. I don't deserve it, but that's what he's done. Join heirs with Jesus. We ever shall reign. I wait for the promise. He's coming again. Mightier works is never a man done than God the Father sent Jesus the Son. The lame man, the blind man, he healed them one and all. He ransomed captive Israel and saved us from the fall because he has done it in us. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.